0: Welcome to Humanly Possible, a vlog and podcast series focused on the game-changing potential of creating human-centric workplaces. On this episode, we're joined by Tayo Roxon, author, TEDx speaker, and equity, inclusion, and diversity consultant. The center of our conversation is around the importance of holding space for discussions around difference in the workplace including having constructive conversations around privilege and race. We talk about his book titled Use Your Difference to Make a Difference and the importance of awareness, action, and allyship for systemic change. Hello, Tayo. How are you? It's great to see you great
1: to see you too. I'm very, uh, I'm fantastic. And I'm also hopeful, I guess it's it's like a fantastic hopeful combination. But the other reason I'm really happy is that I get to actually see your face. I mean, we've only communicated via phone and email <laughs> and DMs. Uh, but now I actually get to, to put a, a face to that and, and see, you know, the amazing family woman that you are.
0: Oh, I I love it. Well, I I know we've been in conversations and I'm just, I've said this before, but I'm just so honored that you have uh, decided to come and share your insights and your knowledge with us. Um, So I know a lot about you because I follow you. I read your book. And so tell us a little bit about Tayo, the human, the person, and then Tayo, the professional, and what your purpose and your work is.
1: So, Tyo, the human and the person, is a walking contradiction and a cultural translator. Uh, To to give that more context, I'm Nigerian, and I grew up in five countries and four continents by the time I was uh, 17, you know, just on, on the verge of turning 18. And a lot of that came with identity crisis, exposure, but also... Nuance and an understanding of uh, how to be Humpty Dumpty a lot of times to, to know when to sit on the fence and 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 yeah. hopefully not not crack my back. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, yeah, but but uh, you know the, the, that is who I am. But my first relationship with anything honestly was through oppression. You know, Nigeria initially when I was born, I spent the first nine years of my life in and out of two military dictatorships, and I was always that curious kid who was who was wondering why people were uh, having the human rights, you know, uh, violated or, you know, being suppressed or muzzled by the press. And it was just something, uh, that never sat right with me. And I guess that's where the seed was planted, but my parents were understandably nervous. Because I'm not a quiet person, <laughs> and and those things came with direct uh, consequences. So that that that's what led to to that. But I've always been that person who's always had a conviction to try and do something that's right. It doesn't always end up being successful, uh, but I've always had a social justice bent. Uh, on the professional side, I'm an author, speaker, and consultant focusing on dismantling systems of oppression. So it's very similar to my personal side. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I run a consultant firm, so that keeps me busy basically 24-7 because of the clients in different uh, parts of the world. And then as a professor and a storyteller, I'm always teaching communication or cross-cultural communication. And then, you know, I like to write and podcast. So those are the other extensions.
0: Very good. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's always tough to ask that question because I feel like folks who are on this on this podcast and this blog usually like their personal side and their professional side ends up overlapping yes is like the the, the dream right uh, the
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's 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 certainly a theme i've been i've been sensing as i've been talking to people so uh, i wanted to highlight your book um yes use your difference to make a difference I am currently reading it for the second time. Oh my God. I'm listening to I think I mentioned to you, I'm listening to the audio on my walks, mm-hmm. and it is just fantastic. Uh, you know, you you talk about different different realms as to where diversity, inclusion, and equity really, I mean, it has a play in almost any realm. But no. you know, this podcast is particularly focused on the human-centric workplace. The human, so yeah. so I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about your book and then dig into, you know, what does a human centric workplace look like from your vantage point? You,
1: you know, the the book, the two questions you can go ahead and add, because I wrote the book because, you know, when you, I grew up, you know, you grew up the way I did. I saw a lot of people not being seen, heard, and understood for who they really were. You know, that's, I believe at the core of everyone's desire to, you know, be seen, heard, and understood for who they really are. And, You know, I've had personal experience with that. I've known what a lot of, you know, racist things could be and and microaggressive things could be, and being in a country that used to be uh, under an oppressive regime or two oppressive regimes for me, I started to observe and take a, you know, a micro and macro lens to it, and I saw that the world operated in many of these systems that create standards that inevitably, you know, ostracize folks that aren't part of the standard or norm. And that's where the desire for the book came, because I've always wanted to write a book, and I remember giving this talk at Chautauqua Institution, which is upstate New York, and was, at the time, it was, I think it's still the largest number of people I've given a talk to, it was 5,000 folks, and they were significantly older than me, so I was already nervous uh, people never believe that I'm nervous, but I always tell people that no, nervous, <laughs> nervous and excitement are the same thing, but I was, I was nervous because I didn't know if there were, I, I would be understood. You know, I was mm-hmm. very energetic and I was like, I oh, don't know. They're like, no, we need to hear you. So I gave a keynote for this, how to connect effectively across cultures. And they, they ushered me off to this line. And then they said, uh, you know, and they had a whole line of people waiting to just ask me questions. And there were older folks and they were all asking me, do you have a book I can give my grandparents, my kids, my nephews, my this? And, you know, we need you to do this. And you talk in, in, in a way that we can apply things. Can you put it in, in that? And that's when I felt like I needed to accelerate the timeline of the book. So I, I went about the process of researching and then I wrote the book. On, on the humanly side of the, of the workplace, a lot of workplaces don't do the same thing that, I, I, that led me to write the book, which is listening to the people around them and truly see who people are. I will even give you some practical examples. If you look at, so I'm a Christian, but, but I grew up that way. But I, I also grew up with different religions around me. And I one of the things that I've noticed in almost any institution is the holidays tend to be Judeo-Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Even the things that are commercialized, right? Christmas sure. and August things. And I've been in workplaces with people that are Buddhists, atheists, or you know people yeah. that practice Hinduism and Hinduism. There has not been an instance where someone has said, "Let me find out the important holidays to you, or the important uh, Independence Day holidays for you, if you're from a different country." Sure. That simple practice
0: hmm. is,
1: is humanizing people, right? You know, and what the alternative to that is, people, you know, they assimilate, right? You're just like, ah, oh, I'm just gonna assimilate into this, and you know, I don't want to get into that. So those are just those little core th- things that help people. Uh, be seen and understood and it it plays a role in policies i you know because of my accent no one ever assumes that i'm nigerian but the thing that i've always (laughs) experienced since i've been in america since i was 17 is i i've always understood what it's like to be on both sides because whenever i go get hired or try to get hired Hmm. they wouldn't sponsor visas for the most part or they wouldn't (laughs) they would say oh your name I got 85 plus job rejections. I know your name. It looks like you don't speak English. And I'm always like, how do you know these things? If you're not even gonna try and and extend a hand to an international student, how do you know that I can't add value if you've already made all these assumptions? And then when they meet me, they're like, Oh, I thought. So
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: Those little things are, are ways that people can humanize. But it comes from listening and, and making a commitment to, to seeing people.
0: Yeah, and it's um it's it seems like a small ask, right? To say you know learn learn the people on your team, but or in your organization on a personal level. But I do think that we've been assimilated as a country, at least to you know you focus on on the tasks and there's your the humans are resources, right? I mean even there's a function called human resources, and I've seen a huge shift, um, especially during COVID where uh, in some of the current recent events uh, where people are starting to realize, yeah, it, it actually pays off to ask the question or to mm-hmm. to listen or, uh, you know, to give people choice. Uh, so it's not that we're there yet, <laughs> but I feel like there's this awakening, at least in this realm of employee team member listening from a personal perspective, but also a professional perspective.
1: We are moving from this place where we were naturally more reactive and we need to be more reflective. And, and one of the things that COVID did was arrest the world. You know, just yes. hey, you, you sit with what your thoughts are. Do you really feel that way? And mm-hmm. I, I always say, as I said, this in the book, I, we, we're more conditioned as opposed to being intentional. So a lot of us just accept things without investigating our own thought patterns. And we don't even investigate our traditions to figure out what the toxic elements of those things are. And mm-hmm. so we accept those things. But if you really sit down, uh, you, you just realize it wasn't that long ago that schools were segregated or women couldn't vote or, you know, all these things couldn't happen. And someone and a group of people eventually had to say, that's not okay. That's not right. We need to change that. Well, what happens in today's world sometimes is we just sort of accept these things and we don't try to push against the envelope. In fact, it becomes you're a rebel or you're this. And you know, we need to make that popular again. <laughs> yeah. And
0: we're, and we're not very good at conflict either. Right. I, no. I feel like that's a skill, uh, that some, some people are more comfortable expressing. And anytime you're going against the standard, right. Your risk, people feel like they're risking something. So oh
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you risk your job, your life, you're, you know, depending on where you are. And in, you know, when you don't have that, when you don't have that uh well you have the privilege rather to be to choose comfort of a courage
0: it becomes
1: less of an issue for you and for those that have to code switch between those worlds that becomes you know that can be resentment or Mm they can be apathy Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) depending on, on that uh and for those that fight there's the idea of it's emotional labor it's draining i'm carrying the labor of something you should care about as well
0: yeah and i'm
1: also trying to fight for my family so
0: well, that's, that's a great point. I think the courage over, com- courage over comfort, yeah. um, there's almost another category, which is like, I don't have a choice, right? I'm in this oppressed group who is being impacted. Yes, so forget that. courage, forget comfort. Like, I, I have to fight for this. Yes. And that's where the privilege, I think the privilege, privilege is actually the ability to make the choice to have the courage or to say, you know, get out of your comfort zone because some people just don't have a, have a choice.
1: Yeah, that's gotcha. right. Well said, well said. Yeah, yep. love it.
0: So I have a question for you, and it, you may not have a straight up answer for it, because I've thought about this a lot. But if you could describe where are we at when it comes to truly creating an equitable and inclusive workforce? Like if you could, I'm, I'm not going to give you a scale from one to 10, because that's probably not the best way to quantify it. But if you could like describe where we're at in this journey, how would you describe it?
1: So diversity is the makeup of our world. Equity is committing to making sure the world's inhabitants have access to what they need. Inclusion is ensuring that the, the inhabitants experience the world, their world's without shame. and belonging is what the world would look like if we had all the above. And when I said equity is making sure the world has access to what they need. I don't know the way're there) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because we are arguing about freedom. And freedom for some people means
0: mm-hmm. just
1: more power without responsibility. You know, I could say what well, I say, what's the problem? Snowflake. And then for others, it means the ability to exist as who they truly are without punishment. And as long as we're going to have these two definitions of freedom, there's always going to be this chasm. Now, is there a movement? I believe so. I think with, with every generation, there's a movement, whether it's with black lives matter, um, and, and people sudden suddenly reawakening to the idea of, Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I have been learning all these things that uh, have sheltered me. Uh, I have tremendous amount of faith. I am an optimist, but I'm an angry optimist. I heard that from Hassan Minaj. And, it. uh, <laughs> and I believe that we're moving an inch in t- towards change. I don't know that it's at the pace, that we that we we need to be, but it is definitely better than it was last year, which is progress. Uh, with workplaces, <laughs> workplaces, I think are at a place where they have to decide who they want to be, and many of them are doing the work now because it's popular mm. to do it, right? Because if you don't do it, the Gen Z voice and the Millennial voice, for example, are going to hold you accountable, and 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 there's that reason, but. I've yet to find out if it's, um, from the heart. Yeah. It's one of those things where I'm riding the wave, but I am remain optimistic that this stays beyond COVID. So, yeah.
0: And, yeah. And some ge- genuine is important. <laughs> genuine, uh, intent versus impact. Uh, yeah. is certainly one of those things to, to look out for, but, you know, I, what I'm seeing is there's, um, Certainly, intense happening. <laughs> now, what's where people are really getting caught up is the actual impact they're able to make, and the um, the the reconstruction of systems that just don't work anymore. Yeah,
1: yeah. and the the sacri- you know, the, there's also this thing—an acknowledgement of sacrifice spectrum that I think people need to start understanding. Uh, maybe "sacrifice" is too strong a word, but. We, a lot of what's happened here in America, and even I'm from Nigeria, we're having our own police brutality issue right now with SARS, and people don't acknowledge a lot of these things. I, I don't know when, when we became this culture of perfectionism where if you say something, uh, yeah. admit that you're wrong, or you call something out that you might have done that, been, that it might have been detrimental, it makes you be perceived uh, as weak. But America hasn't really acknowledged enslavement, for the longest time. I mean, we, whether it's with what's happening with statues or whatever, whatever side you're on the side, it, it just a sort of skates over whether it's with, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, indigenous folks here, it's the same sort of thing. It just sort of skates over. We just skate over all these things and it becomes with that was 10 years, hundreds of years ago, move over it, get over it. And when you don't acknowledge something and you, you're not, Getting in the practice of, of being aware of your privilege. And when you're not aware of your privilege, you don't know how to create access. And when you don't create access, you become disillusioned with this idea that, oh my goodness, I, I grew up here. What's the problem? You're just bringing up the race card or the gender card, all these things. And so we're not training ourselves to see that. And, and then you have people that are emboldening just toxic <laughs> elements of, 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 of lack of accountability. So they're just like, ah,
0: yeah 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 and no it's i mean awareness is definitely something you know and i think of awareness as like in an individual but also a collective and that's where i think the workplace comes into play which is you know one individual in a workplace can have some awareness but if you don't have systems to help the rest of the collective get to a point where it's baked into the culture around conversations and um really questioning and I mean we talk about dismantling a lot but dismantling systems that don't speak to anti-racism for example right. um, or That's don't create the equality that we need uh, and, it, and it takes a lot out of the organization to be able to commit to something like
1: that. yeah I, I, lived experiences was exposure equals worldview mm-hmm. and awareness was actually equals change so if you want to improve your worldview, expand your worldview. You have to investigate what your lived experiences are and what your exposure levels are. Yeah. So individuals, as well as companies, need to figure out how to, one, expand the lived experiences, but also expose themselves to multiple things. Companies need to be better community partners. And and from the awareness side, awareness is so great. And it's the first step in anything. And then there has to be that courage to to do something and say, we are going to create a system or partner up with this and Mm -hmm. we're going to make sure we put that there and that's where people you know some are doing it and some aren't but you know you have to be able to choose that because people make up systems at the end of the day that's
0: the funny thing they don't create themselves (laughs) yeah so who who's responsible for that
1: oh gosh we all have a role in this (laughs) (laughs) i've thought of this i've thought of this for the longest i was since i was a kid honestly uh you know there are people that benefit from the status quo and there are people who are committed to keeping the status quo the way it is because it really, you know, fattens the pockets or makes them, elevates their status. Uh, so there's a, there's a level of responsibility from the people that benefit the most there. But then, then there's also a responsibility for us who are in the field to to make sure the next generation mm-hmm. understands us that that doesn't have to be this way, to educate, people the right way and to, to show that, Hey, this is how you stand up for yourself and, and, and don't give up to oppression. So, so there, there are multiple elements of this. The educator has a role in expanding the curriculum. The bankers have a role in making sure the interest rates are fair to all groups. You know, so do the, the real estate and, and, and you know, people in the real estate industry, people in government have to make sure that they know, the people that they serve this is the most annoying thing to me that uh, they know the people they serve in the local state and level. And, and parents need to stop training the kids to not see color mm-hmm. that's the Yeah other thing. isn't
0: isn't that an interesting um, you know if i feel like in in this country we we oftentimes we we do that as parents even within the workplace right i i don't see color
1: yeah, and yeah. i think that's
0: a huge detriment to this movement
1: yeah but you talk
0: about a lot so yeah no but you're right
1: though I mean so I, you know I I had to have that learning curve myself because I you know I've been black on four continents and I was like I didn't I I was learning different black experiences and you know, I I was like wait what's happening why is it this or was this way is it that way this way and then I can understand the intention behind it uh you know where I just see people but like I said, it we're not at a point where we fully acknowledge all these things. So we can't just skip that step and say, sure. we're just people because we don't treat the systems don't treat people the same. So the idea of, mm. you know, I just I'm just a good person. I'm not racist. It doesn't mean you're not participating in a bad system because everyone is always saying they're good people. But it doesn't mean you're not participating in a bad system. So the more we can think from micro macro, individual system, individual system on a daily basis uh the better without. so everybody does have responsibility yeah yeah
0: and i think that's an important point and the reason why i asked is because i think a lot of workplaces today i cannot tell you how many de and i heads of de and i uh head of diverse i cannot tell you how many postings i have seen and maybe it, all in good intent but hiring a head of uh, diversity or a chief diversity officer is not going to enact the change that you need, unless that person is championing this concept of including everybody to function within their sphere of influence to create change. Uh,
1: Yes, Yes. so spot on. So I'm gonna use pop culture. I I have, uh, (laughs) I don't know, I watch a lot of, TV that people would never expect. And I've been following then. So let's let's use the Bachelor franchise for example. The oh, goodness! Yes. <laughs> tell us. Tell us. So I this bachelor thing has been happening since I was in middle school. So it's been a, l- a long time. And they've only they only had Rachel Lindsay as the, the first black bachelor bachelorette. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of you know Claire season, was the current bachelor, bachelorette, uh, this you know, racial injustice and uh, started happening, and all of a sudden they decide to bring them on, hey, in the middle of this season, we're going to bring our first black bachelor. And then we're going to uh, do the same thing for Claire to have a first black bachelorette. And I'm like, okay, you had all these years. It's been coming up. Why do you feel like you're going to do this now? And, and uh, by the way, I hope this changed the whole ecosystem. But my whole point is it was so reactive. And it showed that they weren't listening to people mm. before because it had been said. And then the other thing that comes with this, which is what a lot of companies don't do is in the bachelor and bachelor system, it's like a recruiting thing, Like right? the, the Contestants can right. be that. And then if that can be that, and then it's all that. And then if they have been proactive, they'd say, maybe we need to diversify <laughs> and change behaviors because our excuse was it wouldn't get ratings. But if we trained people, and show we bring people from different backgrounds and chose to be the courageous ones. since we're the preeminent dating show mm-hmm. we could have changed culture that way instead of reactive way. it's the same sort of thing people just end up saying oh my goodness you're right you're right after it's been said over years right and it's one of those things that it really bothers me when i see it because i am of two minds i'm like really now now and i'm like oh, at least it's being done
0: but yes, that's, the that's true that's true at least it's being done but yeah you get to the point where then you know the the it's back to your listening point right if you're listening to people and you under, and you understand where the gaps are that would have happened a long time ago
1: it would have I mean it's been over this is almost 20 seasons been, there is no reason it, it actually is any there's no reason there's no excuse the only excuse that people have come up and I've heard all of them say it is ratings this the virtual season wasn't as much and that, and then that's the courage over comfort thing you determine that's that's when you show up if if you're truly inclusive you say well that's the that's the problem of our viewers and we're going to make sure that we change it but yes. you have to do
0: that. yeah absolutely and so it's you know again i i I'm with you i'm on of two minds, part of me thinks great, you know, we're're we're, we're moving towards something. but yeah. you know my hope, you know I read those job descriptions, right? And <laughs> it's all about creating dNI committees and you know, kind of passing the buck or you know, it, it, it's not there's not much substance. So, you know, I think to your point, the important piece is that person, if they're coming in or you're hiring someone to lead up this effort, they are instilling, True behavior and transformational change. And that doesn't yeah. require just a bunch of, of initiatives and training. Ah,
1: uh, so no, less figureheads and more empowerment, more empowerment with that shit. So, yeah. Yes. I'm with you yes. on that. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to unpack a little bit because um, we've already talked about some of the recent current events, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening in Nigeria from police brutality, police brutality in the States. Um, you know, also the uprising and the civil unrest, the divisiveness politically in the U.S. So this yeah. is—I mean, this is really impacting the globe. It's the same uh, thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. Um, what responsibility does an employer or an organization have to talk, have conversations, address these types of issues within their workplace? Because I've, you know, talked to some, uh, you know, owners, founders, and you know. There's a hesitancy, right? It's like, what's what's too far? What's what's too far when it comes to bringing this up or sending a letter or you know addressing these types of issues? What kind of responsibility do you think the employer has?
1: You know, it's funny, Angela. I I get the same thing with my clients uh, that some are like, keep it out of the workplace. Some are, I don't know what to do. I already did that, and people don't want to make this mistake. But I think it's it's imperative. I, I think every leader should have a say on this because. I hate that we've gotten to a point where human rights are now political issues. You, you know, it, it, I, I don't know when we started politicizing <laughs> political yeah. issues. There used to be a time where we we knew you can't just kill people, regardless of whatever country you're from. <laughs> <We knew. laughs> <That's bad. laughs> yeah, it's just bad. It's just bad, right? Yeah. It's, and so I, we, I, I think, I think leaders need to continue to to go down that that thought of being firm about this. You know. Mm. The, the, there are many things where nuance is there, and I'm a big proponent of nuance, but there, there's a human rights, or you're not a human rights issue. And so it then becomes this idea of being vulnerable with where you are at that. I think every leader should say that. You know, Whether a leader has dropped the buck in the bass and said, hey, look, you know, it's taking me this long, but this is my commitment to this. And this is where I'm going. I'm inviting each of you or as many people as I can, and we're going to do such and such. This is mm. not going to, and then every leader, I always tell them, make sure you address and anticipate the the things because obviously there'll be some skepticism. I know in the past, I know how this goes. We do this for two months and it goes away, but here's our extended plan. We're going to have such and such. Everyone can input this. There won't be consequence for you getting fired. You have to be as specific as possible mm-hmm. and please feel free to let me know if I'm doing something that's, that's affecting you. I don't want to you know there to be all these things and that has to be drummed down by the way it's not gonna no one's gonna believe you in the first time or the second time you do it it's the idea of showing up repeatedly I, I do big brother big sister and now it's harder with the covid but my my mentee i've had for four years now and his parents uh you know unfortunately <laughs> they weren't able to always show up due to one circumstance or not and he said one thing to me last year that i never forgot and uh, you know, it was his birthday and then I got him something because he didn't say he was gonna get it. He said, Oh wow, you really do what you say you're gonna do. That was a third year in after uh, you know after that. Twelve, I think it was 13 at the time. But that that's that little thing, I was like, Whoa, you're used to being disappointed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. You're used to being disappointed all the time. And even if people say that. And that's what showing up is. It it's showing up and knowing that people are going to yell at you sometimes and they're going to be like you are you're part of the racist system you're all that and then holding space with that and learning that hey Mm -hmm. that's that
0: so when you when you say holding space because i really i like that term because to me it's really descriptive around how you have tough conversations at work Mm-hmm. not just about race or civil unrest or what's happening in world events but just in general, like in general conflict and general um general self-reflection in a yes, conversation. Yes. So tell us more about that concept of creating space with tough conversations.
1: Well yes no, that's a great question. A holding space you know has to do with you know making sure everyone's needs, desires uh, are all met but also the fears are addressed and yeah and think about all the things that are stigmatized mental health or hair or all these things. Mm-hmm. If people know that, Hey, I can bring up, uh, let's say I have a friend who's, who's bipolar. We were just talking about this. If I can bring up the fact that my polar and it's not going to affect my, my, you know, the way that you address me or you, you know, cause I'm a senior leader here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: that's great. And so that idea of creating space means that a leader needs to first be vulnerable, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reveal
1: something about this and guarantee that there isn't going to be any consequence for being that vulnerable. A lot of times when people don't feel safe is because they feel like if they're themselves, they'll be seen as too extra or too this or too that. And that is going to lead to some level of ostracization, which mm-hmm. leads to less opportunities, and then less opportunities will lead to less money on the table and all that. That's why it, it's important for people to say, this is nothing to do with your quotas, this is nothing to do with anything. This is actually a time to just talk about anything other than work. In fact, I'm going to go first. Here's what I've been dealing with. Blah, 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 blah. goes. Yeah.
0: And that's the um, vulnerability is another good um, word. I use it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the cur- having the courage to be vulnerable and what that says about leadership. And I think it's a real shift from the standards we've set around leadership. And I think that's a part of the, the system, right? I mean, if you look at the yes. research, everyone, you know, we, we as humans, we perceive other people as leaders or not. And those are from a place of tradition. Like yes. traditionally, you know, women were not in the workplace. Traditionally, um, black people were not in the workplace. So yes. it's, it's taken longer for us to recognize those people as leaders because we've had one standard of what leadership is. Yeah, and I talk a lot about like executive presence a lot. I I mm-hmm. hate the term because executive presence is baked in, um, you know, white supremacy or oh, or yeah. from a place of um, standards around white being being the standard or being the yeah, supreme right. creme de la creme, right? Yeah. No, I talk
1: about this all the time. I always call it standards and norms. And a lot of times the standards that we're measuring things are is whiteness. And that's exactly correct. You know, beauty what sta- anything that we started. I know now there's a shift between beauty standards and all these things, but the idea of hair, it took a while for me to even decide to even grow my hair because even in Nigeria, it was drummed down to me that this is a uh, you know, you have to have a low cut, and all these things. This is why I say white supremacy doesn't. It's not just white people that participate. In this, it's 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 sort of unfortunately this idea that we've made standard in the world. You know, it's why Absolutely. there's colorism. You know, it right? is why yeah. there's you know uh, an uptick in the market for bleaching cream. It happens in Nigeria, it happens in India, yeah. happens in you know several Asian countries, and all these things. And even in the media stories, all these ideas and, and biases that that we've come to shape the world, but we demonize people that don't fit the quote-unquote norm. You know, heteronormative world, for example, yes. if you're not this. Idea of what a man should be. What's a typical man? If you're mm-hmm. showing sure emotion, that's less. What a woman should be. You know, what? what gen, all these things. All these things we don't investigate enough. And it becomes a problem when society evolves. Because as society is evolving and traditions are not, there is just going to be an inevitable rift. And 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 that means everyone has to consistently choose to be actively reflecting on the choices they're making and what the impact of those choices have on the communities around them. So,
0: yes, absolutely. And like you said, I think we all participate um, in 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 those standards, right? Yep. Even yep. without knowing it, subconsciously. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and it's really up to us. And that's where the awareness comes in. Regardless if you're white, non white white, male, female, it doesn't matter. Um, We all need to challenge why we do the things we do and how performance is evaluated too.
1: Absolutely. I'll even give you examples of me doing as a kid. I was a, well, I remember I was a 10 year old. I was a skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent in a French speaking country in America and actually going to puberty, which I I say all the time in the book. But I remember uh, when, I went to straighten my hair because someone made fun of my hair, and I told my mom, I "Was like, can you make it look like, like the Backstreet Boys?" Because that was my thing. I was like, I wanted, I wanted, I also, I also wanted toning cream. I wanted, I was like, I want to look like this part of my. This was me mm. at 9 11. Uh, I went by Roxin instead of Akintayo or Tayo because I started getting tired of people not um, being willing to be, not being able to pronounce my name. And I remember feeling grateful that my last name was English Sounded. But can you, you, you can hear these. Things. This is me processing this as a preteen. And in my head, I had already made those associations that I need to dim this to, to fit it. But that's, that's an idea of white supremacy. Why is it an Anglo-Saxon name? What is the name of that? And that's happening whether people are telling you or not i you know i didn't know I, I didn't have language to it as a kid i just knew i wanted to fit in and and, and that happens in all these systems people just want to fit in and, and so if you don't even give them a chance to be individuals it's just,
0: and it's still happening right i mean yeah. i am 33 years old and uh you know i i've come to the realization that you know this this has been happening to me and it happens to other people uh yeah. you're 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 constantly exerting energy to fit in and that's uh-huh. real energy it's absolutely real energy and the more that you create a place where people don't feel like they belong and they need to fit in the more energy people are exerting to that and the more worn out they're going to be because you know i remember coming home and it's just like people talk about their customer service uh, voice right yeah. like <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. yeah. you know like my husband sometimes will see me walking around and he's just like what did you just say <laughs> Close the loop, and all this jar, like you know. And this is just this is built up over you know right. fifteen years of a career. So, um, so I do think from a workplace perspective, I think there's a realization this happens globally. You know, you have you've made that very clear. Like this isn't this isn't just in the U.S. There's a global impact to this. Yeah. And, um, so yeah. my last question, which kind of goes back to to the title of your book, "Use Your Difference to Make a Difference." What is it's a lot of executives, founders, um, leaders are listening to this, you know, obviously we've, we've made a case around the moral importance of this topic, but what is the actual business case around differences? And, you know, how would you describe that to a leader?
1: It's a good. It's another great question. So whether... I, you know, there's the moral side and the business side, you know, when people are thinking of profits, there's people in profits, always thinking about that. If you want to one, get to the younger generation, you and I are both, I guess, we're, 30, 30, 31 in a few days or so we're both part of the millennial generation. And then there's the, you know, I have a 20 year old brother. If you want to get to another generation, mm. you have to understand how to see people. If you want to get to another market, you, that's in another country. You have to understand where they're coming from and how to do business. If you want to expand your workforce and infuse creativity, you have to understand how someone else you know, sees the world. People can walk in and chew gum. We know that. So that means people can have multiple ways to get to, to a problem. Now, we've identified that standards are based on some you know, uh, weird rules that create all these hierarchies. As the world is evolving and becoming much more smaller, especially with digital media, people are going to have much more agency to determine which brand and people they're going to work with. And it's not like when we were younger, when we just knew Nike or Puma, all of these things. People also follow the people behind the brand, and, and they're making all those decisions. I mean, you can talk about pros and cons of social media, but that's one of the things. People are very interested in what you have to say about certain things. So. If you don't have people in your company that are able to, one, anticipate a need of a company, anticipate trends, also correct bad behaviors and see and let you know all those things, it's going to inevitably affect your profit. And that, <laughs> I believe, yeah. is the, the, the economic you know, uh, effect of this. In,
0: yeah, uh, you know. that's the bottom line. And I would also add – You know, most of the companies I've worked for have been Fortune 500, and most of them have delivered to a diverse audience, right? Like their customers were diverse. So, you know, what I've always focused on is it just makes business sense to have diversity in your company and empathy in your company, because your customers live in these neighborhoods and are spread out all across the world. So it, it only makes business sense to understand their experience. Isn't, you know,
1: isn't it arrogant though sometimes when you think about it, you know, if you don't look like the workforce you serve, it's, it's, I'm like, I always think about it, especially as I've gotten older, I'm like, how do you feel like you can just know?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the perfect example is when I used to work for Kaiser Permanente. Now, luckily they were diverse um, in many ways. So they actually had an effort around making sure they matched their patient base. But yeah. I mean, patient experience, you have to be able to, you don't, you, you need to be able to have people who can relate culturally yeah. in that operating room, you know, absolutely. at the end of the day, you know, people speak different languages, they oftentimes feel more comfortable culturally with someone who, you know, especially if they've just moved here from another country. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's so, so crucial.
1: Oh, we got you. We got you people like you doing uh, the work. So I'm excited and uh, uh, hopefully I'll I'll be working alongside you, but this is. yes.
0: Well, as I mean, I'm just, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it 50 times. I'm so grateful that you had a chance to join us. Uh, Your book is wonderful. I would please ask everyone. I'm going to put a link in the podcast. So if you're listening, uh, please buy this book. It's got practical tips. It gives the full range, the landscape of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging uh, in the workplace, in, in culture, and it, it spans way past the workplace. But uh, thank you, Tayo. I really appreciate your time and your insights.